0: Hello and welcome to Mars. Let's talk about Hello, everybody. I'm Dr. David Flannery, and I'm Dr. Luke Nove. And this is Pale Blue Dot. Thanks for tuning in today. So we're sounding a bit different this week, Luke. Yes, we are in a COVID lockdown in Brisbane again. Brisbane again. We're at this Zoom thing, though, aren't we? Uh, for the most part. So, who is our special guest this week? So, we have astrophysicist John T. Horner, Professor John T. Horner from the University of Southern Queensland, which is in Toowoomba. Jonty is a leading expert in the fields of astronomy and, in particular, exoplanet detection and astrobiology. Anyway, I think everyone's going to love Jonty, so let's get him on the line. Let's do it. Hi, good afternoon. It's good to be here and good to chat. Would well, Johnty, would you like to tell us a bit about
1: yourself and your background? Yeah, so I'm clearly not originally from Australia. You can probably pick that by the accent. Um, but I grew up in the north of England in a pretty low socioeconomic area that was going through interesting times. I think that's a polite way of putting it. And I just got incredibly fortunate a, that I had really supportive parents who were both working but also that I stumbled across this great hobby of astronomy when I was about five years old, thanks to accidentally watching a TV programme. And it gave me this passion, it gave me this hobby that I really wanted to do as a job. And I joined my local astronomy society with my parents' help and support when I was about eight years old. And we got regular talks from professional astronomers who came along once a month and gave us talks. And that was really useful, but that, that led directly to me getting advice on what to study and where to go in order to have the opportunity to make my passion my career essentially and that was if you want to be an astronomer you need to study physics because physics gives you the tool set to unpack the universe so with that advice I went to the University of Durham as an undergraduate spent four years doing physics and astronomy then did my PhD at Oxford University looking at the solar system small objects and since then I've traveled all around the world doing astronomy and ended up In a place I'd never even heard of when I was a kid. So, yeah, kind of awesome. So, John,
0: could we call you an expert in the field of exoplanet detection?
1: You could probably call me anything you want, but whether I can own that description is an entirely other matter. I mean, that said, um, part of the work that I do these days is working as part of Australia's leading planet finding team. You know, I'm not necessarily the person that finds the planets, I'm the one who crash tests them and disproves them. So, I've probably killed more planets than I've discovered. But I'm part of that whole team and that whole process of how we discover alien worlds and how we learn more about them.
0: So, Luke, we have some questions from our listeners. Shall we get into them? Yes, I think so. First question is a great one. The question is What determines the position of a snow line? Is it the same distance or is it relative to the size of the center star?
1: So, one of the things that is really key to the idea of where you get wet planets rather than dry planets and where you form big planets rather than small ones is the concept of the snow line in a protoplanetary disk where you've got planets forming around a star and the closer you are to the star the hotter it is now in a protoplanetary disk you don't have the pressure that means things can be liquid and what that means is you have things that are either solid or gas if you are warm enough you'll be a gas if you're cold enough you'll be a solid and that's true for pretty much everything So you can imagine for every different kind of compound and every different chemical species, there is a point in that disk where you go from being too hot to too cold. So you go from being gas to solid. But so for every species you can think of, whether it's iron or titanium oxide or water or carbon dioxide, you'll have a snow line, which is the point at which you go from only having gaseous of that thing to having solid of that thing instead. Where that's really important for planet formation is particularly the water snow line. Water is one of the most common things in the universe. It's made of the most common atom in the form of hydrogen and the third most common atom in the form of oxygen. And when you put them together, you get water. So water is hugely abundant. And what that means is if you're in a disk where planets are forming by solid materials banging together and sticking together, if you're far enough from the star that water can be solid, you'll have a lot more solid materials. And therefore, planets will form quicker. And that's why you can form giant planets like Jupiter and Saturn. That position of the snow line depends on a number of things. Firstly, it depends on the amount of energy coming out from the star. A smaller, dimmer, cooler star will have a proportionally cooler disk, and so the snow line will be further, and it will be closer to the star. The other thing, though, is that the position of the snow line isn't fixed all the time. As the star changes while the planets are forming, so too will the position of the snow line, because the temperature in the middle of the disk will change. That will also be impacted by how opaque the disk is. The harder it is for radiation to penetrate into the disk, the harder it is for the interior to heat up. And so you can imagine that you've got this disk around a star that is actually a bit flared, so it's not so much a pancake, more like a donut or something in between. And so what sets the position of that snow line when we're talking about planet formation is primarily the mass of the star and therefore the energy output that it's got, but also is tied to how dense the disk is, how massive the disk is, and those are things that change over time. And so you do actually expect the position of the snow line to vary through the time that planets are forming. And even through to the point where the gas has been blown away and you're at the kind of final clear-up stage where you've just got rubble left, that's a more transparent time. And so solid icy objects that formed outside the snow line will probably start to devolatilize because suddenly they're exposed to all that radiation and they're warm enough for the water to go back to being gas rather than solid. So it becomes more complex the more you look at it, and that's, I think, one of these things that's really key to all of the things we do in science. You ask a simple question, you get a simplish answer, but the more detail you look at, the more complicated it gets, and that's one of the beauties of what we do. As a scientist, every time you ask a question, you might get an answer, but that answer brings another five questions, so it keeps you in a job, essentially
0: surprisingly complex answer. So this is related to your work on finding exoplanets, yes?
1: It is. So
0: in terms of looking at potentially other solar systems with a similar model to to ours or a similar power source? Well that's a really revealing thing as
1: well because the idea we have of how planets form is an evolving thing, because the more planetary systems we find, the more variety we find, the more complex the process becomes. And one of the things that's really obvious is that whilst the planet formation process is ubiquitous, essentially every star forms planets, it also has unique outcomes every time. And I guess it's a bit like thinking about families. You know, the process by which people have children is fairly similar from one person to the next. But the outcome of that, every child is different, every person is different, and planetary systems are much the same. So it becomes a really complex thing, and that's part of why we're so interested in studying the wealth of planetary systems out there when we only knew the solar system. We thought we understood it perfectly and you'd have a process that formed rocky planets near a star, giant planets further out. And on the one hand, over the last 30 years, we've learned a lot more about our solar system and we've realized how much more complex and chaotic the formation of planets in the solar system is. But at the same time, we found this wealth of planetary systems around other stars. And they've shown us the incredible variety of outcomes that that formation process can have.
0: We have a related question from one of our listeners, which is can a nebulae nebula, I guess, from a star explosion, reform into a new protostellar disk and therefore a new star?
1: So on a broad sense, supernovae explosions repollute space with heavy elements and put material back into space. And those will eventually be incorporated into future generations of stars and planets. So that material splashes out it can go on to pollute planets that are already forming. And there's a strong body of evidence that the solar system was polluted by a nearby supernova explosion within about a million years of it starting to form in the form of the amount of very short-lived radioactive materials that were present when the Earth and the other planets formed. And we can track that by the daughter products that are present in the rocks and the meteorites that we find. So we can tell that the solar system was Essentially, and this is a term that's relevant because of the Olympics, I guess, the solar system was doped with these highly radioactive short-lived elements. And the only way we can explain it is that there was a supernova nearby. Now, that supernova occurred after the solar system started forming. That supernova didn't go off and form a new protoplanetary disk or new protostellar object. What it did instead was pollute the ones that were nearby and have a direct impact on the planetary systems that were formed around the young stars at the time. That said, there is some evidence that following a supernova explosion and also the more gentle death of smaller stars, some of the material liberated in that can actually collapse down to form a protoplanetary disk and you can get a second generation of planets forming around the stellar remnant. So the leftover corpse of the star, and possibly the most famous example of this, are the planets Drow, Phoebe and Poltergeist. These planets were founded in 1992 and 1994, and were totally unexpected because nobody imagined you could have planets around a pulsar when a pulsar is what's left behind from star exploding i mean they're tiny little rubble piles. there you know they probably count as dwarf planets in the solar system in all, in all honesty but the best explanation for them is that they're not the husks of planets that were almost destroyed but not quite but rather that they represent a second generation of planets that formed from the material left behind after the supernova explosion itself so jonty you just said that we wouldn't have the
0: heavier elements in our solar system, some of which we really need if it wasn't for the explosions of stars. So was that? what are the chances of that happening just at the right time? I mean, if we had a supernova any time in the last few billion years, it would have wiped out life on the planet, wouldn't
1: it? Depends how close it was. I and mean, It actually turns out you need the supernova to be pretty close in real estate terms before it's totally devastating rather than just mildly devastating. But the challenge with all these things is these are stuff we need for life on Earth. And for me, it would be really fascinating to be able to unpack which are critical and which are not, because at the minute we just see the things we need. And because we've only got one example of life, you assume that things are equally important. And it's one of the things I think on a broader sense from a habitability point of view, people kind of go, oh, you have to be in the habitable zone. You've got to be the right temperature for liquid water. And that's it. And there's actually this incredible raft of other things that have contributed to the Earth being the way it is. And you start rushing into the borderlines of philosophy here, which is, are we here in a unique place because this is the only place in the universe that is so well-tuned for us to survive that we could be here? In other words, we're very rare. Or is it rather that we could be in all sorts of places, but wherever you end up, you would be incredibly well-tuned to that environment. So you would think you need all that fine-tuning to exist. And this comes in with all the different factors that people have proposed to contribute to the Earth's habitability and form the basis of a hypothesis called the Rare Earth Hypothesis, which suggests that life is incredibly uncommon in the cosmos because the Earth has so many odd peculiarities, weirdnesses, that you wouldn't get that combination of weirdnesses anywhere else in the cosmos. Whereas the reality is, you know, if we didn't have those things and we were still here, we'd probably think if you had them, that would rule life out. So
0: I think that leads into the next question, Could life exist building on other elements other than carbon, Uh, like a metal, for example, or in in a chemical metal,
1: let's say? There seems to be a lot of agreement among biologists when I talk to them at conferences that carbon is the easiest thing to make natural life, not constructed life, but natural life, because it has such a wide range of reactions with everything. And one of the arguments that I've seen made is that silicon is probably the next best on the list. It doesn't have quite as many options, but it has enough. But the fewer kind of options you have, the harder it is to make life. Now, biology, from an astronomer's point of view, is quite a conservative science. So the people who are the most resistant to astrobiology as a science are actually the biologists and the geologists, historically. And so I think one of the risks we run into, and it's true in every field, it was true with planet formation as well, It's very easy to stick to a comfort zone and say, this is the only thing we know, this is the only thing we understand, so therefore this is the only way it can be. And the thing that goes along with that is that our knowledge of anything is best at conditions similar to the conditions that we're in right now, you know, room temperature, room pressure. The further you go away from those, the more unknowns there are and the less knowns there are. And we we were talking earlier in the lecture about the possibility of life on Titan and 30 years ago everybody was saying it's too cold you can't get enough reactions and then a young woman i knew a decade ago was doing awesome research looking at chemistry and found that one carbon molecule have three times the number of reactions at titan's temperature pressure conditions than it does at room temperature suddenly you've tripled the chemistry for that one compound and we didn't know that before because the chemistry at 180 degrees below freezing in a liquid methane environment is not something people can easily study in a room that's at 20 degrees C and one atmospheric pressure, you know. So I think all of that means I as an astronomer am more optimistic about the possibilities of the other. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm saying it's out there. I'm just saying we won't know till we find it. And the unknowns are so great that I'm hesitant to say no.
0: So it's very much watch this space, I think.
1: It is. Yeah, And I think in some way, other fields look at astronomers as almost science fiction people because we're willing to entertain... Ideas that other disciplines think are stupid, and sometimes that's ludicrous, um, and sometimes it turns out to be a really good thing. We have one more question from our listeners on the subject
0: of protoplanetary disk formation. The question is whether the material that formed planets is completely made from the dust of supernova, or whether it could also be remnants of the previous planets that came before our solar system. And I think one way of maybe reframing that question is is asking whether Maybe we ourselves are made of the bodies of uh, a civilization that existed before our own solar system.
1: Could be. And I mean, you've obviously been watching Star Trek. I remember one of the ways that Star Trek Jerry rigged their storylines to make everybody looks like people because they didn't have a costume budget was that there was a progenitor race in the past that seeded all these worlds with DNA that would eventually evolve to look like them in the world's biggest of flukes and the biggest of convergent evolutions. The planets that form in protoplanetary disks are made of material that includes hydrogen and helium and a little bit of lithium that has been around since the Big Bang. And there's a tiny little bit of stuff that was formed in the Big Bang. There's then a lot of material that was formed in previous generations of stars that died in a variety of interesting and exciting ways, including supernovae. There are also materials formed by stellar collisions like neutron star uh, neutron star collisions and white dwarfs exploding. There's a beautiful graphic, and we can try and find it at some point, probably on Twitter, to be honest, which has the periodic table with the different bits color-coded by their origin on Earth. So it's basically, these are the elements that make up everything on Earth. And for each one of them, this is where it was created. So where did the iron come from? Where did the uranium come from? Where did the water, sorry, where did the oxygen come from? Stuff like that. And every different element has a different source. And that will include supernovae, it'll include red giant stars and their winds, it'll include the Big Bang, all the rest of it. There will be material included that has been in solid objects before. And we see this with the asteroid belt and comets. The asteroid belt is collisionally grinding down, releasing dust and debris. The dust gets blown out of the solar system by the solar wind and will get incorporated into the next generations of planets in the galaxy eventually the larger objects, a significant fraction of them, eventually get ejected from the solar system to roam space forever free of the solar system. And those larger objects could eventually become incorporated into newly forming planetary systems. And there have been suggestions that I think from a dynamical point of view, from the orbital mechanics point of view, they're not that necessarily believable. That we found a couple of objects in the solar system that are trapped in the solar system that have an origin exterior to the solar system. There's one of A group of objects called the Jupiter Trojans that moves on a highly peculiar orbit it goes around backwards and one of the suggestions for the origin of that object is it's a captured interstellar visitor and we have seen two interstellar objects come through in the form of um, Umau Mao, the asteroid that was definitely an asteroid and not an alien spaceship and Mm -hmm. comet Borisov that came through a year later and in the coming decade we'll find loads more of those with the Vera Rubin Observatory we'll find tens and hundreds of these interstellar objects And so it's likely that there is some component of the planets in our planetary system that may have been part of the planet formation process in another stellar system in the past. may even be the remains of shattered planets, because we know the final stages of planet formation for us were hugely violent. Mercury, the innermost planet, is half the size it once was. There's evidence Venus may have had a giant impact, slowing its spin down. The Earth-Moon system was formed by the collision of the proto-Earth with an object the size of Mars mars has a crater half the size of the planet jupiter's core is bigger and smushier than expected and slightly offset which is evidence of a collision with something bigger than the earth there's evidence for saturn uranus is tipped over so these giant collisions were really common at the end of planet formation and for terrestrial type planets rocky type planets they will have scattered a vast amount of debris much of which will have then been ejected from the solar system entirely never to return and some of that will be incorporated in future planets. It may well be that there'll be a podcast being re- recorded in five billion years, time where that question is asked, and part of the planet is comprised of fragments of the proto-Earth that were ejected when the Moon was formed.
0: Thanks, jonty for that incredibly detailed answer to
1: what I thought was quite a difficult question. There are no stupid questions. You might get a stupid answer, but there are no stupid questions.
0: <laughs> so thank you for uh, for joining us today, jonty uh, Very informative uh, a deep insight into deep time
1: and space and uh, thank you it's an absolute pleasure thanks for bearing with me and putting up with the fact that what should be a five-word answer turns into a five paragraph answer that's fairly common but there's always one there. there's always another surprise thanks Jonty. thanks Jonty. Awesome. thank you very much
0: hello
1: and welcome to Mars let's talk about actual planets